All right, morning, church. We're starting a new series. So open up to the book of Romans, New Testament book of Romans. And if you turn to chapter 5, so here's what we're doing. We're starting a new series, walking through the next few chapters of, of Romans, this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Um, we're calling it Experiencing Grace, and we're going to walk through chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8, which, which is predominantly about how God's big truths of God's word and what he has done for us in Christ come down for a landing into the lives of believers and just bring about transformation and change in our lives. Um, so there was a formidable theologian back in the 17th century. His name was John Owen. He's maybe the brightest light of the English Puritans. Well recognized for his theological contributions in the history of the church, particularly in the area of developing from scripture the doctrine of sanctification. What does it mean for us to become more and more like Jesus? He did great work in that area. He did great and groundbreaking work in the development of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. What does the scripture teach us about the power and work and ministry of the third person of the Trinity in particular? And then he did great and glorious work from scripture on the doctrine of the atonement. How do we fully understand the, the ways in which God has worked in Jesus Christ and through his cross to bring about our redemption? All that to say, while he was a, a titan in theology, he also talked a lot about everyday lived experience of believers, which is where we're going to focus this particular study. Here's one of the things that John Owen wrote. He wrote these words, it is to no purpose to boast of Christ if we lack evidence of his graces in our hearts and lives, but unto whom he is the hope of future glory Unto them he is the life of present grace, which is just his 17th century British guy way of saying, if our theology, our grand theology doesn't connect and isn't wired up to the way that we live our lives, then something's broken. We've short-circuited the way that scripture is meant to operate in our lives. You know, there is a God-ordained relationship, and we're really exploring this through this whole series. There's a God-ordained relationship between thinking right thoughts about God, which is theology, and living a life that's shaped by his word or living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not one or the other. Both are needed for us to live vibrant lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. You even think about this in terms of churches, right? So it's easy for churches to go off the road into one ditch or to pull so hard against that ditch that we go into the ditch on the other side of the road, right? So churches, for example, that might emphasize experience and feelings over theological depth and truth. And what ends up happening, if you do that long enough and that gets baked in, what happens is churches that emphasize experience and feelings over theology end up creating a theology that validates our experience, creating a theology that validates our feelings, which is a classic case of the tail wagging the dog, right? So theology and truth is meant to drive the Christian life, not be the, the, in the back, right? It's driving the Christian life. But on the other hand, you can go into the ditch on the other side of the road and you can have churches that exalt sound doctrine. And everybody in the church knows how to spell grace in the ancient languages. But when it's time to sing about grace, it seems like nobody's buying it. It seems like nobody's actually feeling the affection for Jesus Christ. Enter Romans. 
Romans is, a, is, it is arguably the Apostle Paul's magnum opus. And, and it, it takes you to what I believe is probably the, the peak, the Mount Everest of the entire New Testament is probably Romans, the end of Romans chapter 11, after Paul has expanded on the, the glorious sovereign work of God in salvation in Jesus Christ. And he gets all the way to the summit of Mount Everest. And what does the apostle do at the summit of Everest at the end of chapter 11? He sings. He bursts forth. His theology gives way to doxology. And there's this explosion of praise. He's just like, I'll be back in a minute. Of him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory. Who can understand his ways? Who can fathom the depths of the wisdom of this God? His ways are inscrutable. It's past our our understanding. He's just worshiping. And he's going to be back in a minute to talk about how we live the Christian life. But there's this explosion of worship. The, the reason that we're calling this series Experiencing Grace is because we're at a section in the book of Romans where the Apostle Paul is lowering the landing gear and he's bringing some of these massive truths in to how they're supposed to affect the experience of the Christian, the way that we live our lives. It's an awesome, awesome book of the Bible. If it's not familiar to you, I pray that the Holy Spirit is just going to use it to quicken and enliven your faith. You drop this letter in the river and it sizzles. It has, it has heat. It has effect for the Christian life. I hope we come away with that. All right, follow along with me. Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. What powerful words. I uh, I read a memoir, finished a memoir this week by a well-known actress who's now 74 years old and she just walks, walks the reader through her life and the pain in her life. It's actually called In Pieces because there's so much pain 
in her life. And she talks about her career, but she talks about her family. She talks about when she was really, really young and her dad was called off to war. And, and after her dad goes off to war, her mom leaves her dad to begin an acting career. And, and then one thing after another after another, and she just looks at her life and it's just in pieces. It's just the shattered ruins of her life. And she would spend years of her life searching for love, yearning for love, and not knowing where to find it because she had never seen it before. She hadn't experienced the securing power of, of a loving family, a loving mom, and a loving dad. And so she's just constantly reaching and saying, is this love? No, that wasn't love. Is this love? No, that wasn't love. And here in Romans chapter 5, God is impressing upon the hearts of believers and saying, if you know the depth of my love for you, I promise you, it will change your life. Romans 5 is talking about that glorious reality that's been sung about by the church for 2,000 years. God's love is greater far, the hymn writer said, than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. There's a particular word in the Christian vocabulary for God's love shown to the undeserving, and that word is grace. And Romans 5, really in really the whole book of Romans, majors in grace. It is all about this grace that we have come to know in God through his son, Jesus Christ. So we're asking the question that's very much oriented toward experience, and it's this question. What would it look like to live more securely in the grace of God? So our whole study this morning is gonna be framed around answering that question from this text. What would it look like to live more securely in the grace of God? Number one, we have hope even when we suffer. We're convinced to live securely in the grace of God is to be convinced we have hope even when we suffer. So there's a lot of experiential language that's loaded into this passage. So the Apostle Paul is going to talk about hope. That's why this point is named after hope because you're going to see that word if you look down in your Bible, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5. So in this first section, he's going to talk a lot about hope. But all this hope is rooted in what theologians often call gospel indicatives. Indicative just being a word that this just means this is the way it is because of God's grace. You didn't, you didn't make this happen. God made this happen. It's an is in the life of the believer. It's not an, something you aspire to. It's something God has already done. So Paul wants to, if you look at the language there, he wants to get us where? He wants to get us boasting, his language, in the hope of the glory of God. How is he going to get us boasting in the hope of the glory of God? He's got to prime the pump first. And he's going to prime the pump with gospel indicatives. He begins with justification, right? Since we have been declared righteous by faith, since we have been justified by faith. So he's talking about this verdict by which God has declared sinners to be righteous in his sight because of the work of Jesus Christ, his son. And how is he leveraging the glorious doctrine of justification? What's the, what's the upshot of the way that he's using this truth? And it's to say this. If you're taking notes, it's in your notes. The great dilemma has been gloriously answered. 
The great dilemma has been gloriously answered. We're going to talk more about the great dilemma next week because in chapter 5, verse 12, through the end of the chapter, that is the main focus of the Apostle Paul. The great dilemma has been solved. We deserve to be condemned, but God has instead put our sins on Jesus Christ, his one and only son, so we walk scot-free, right? Jesus walks with our sins to the cross. We walk from the cross with his righteousness. That's the glory of what he's gonna talk about in the next section. The glorious dilemma has been answered. The deep problem of our deserving wrath from God has been answered by Jesus Christ, the Son. Justification means that God takes the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect finished work, his perfect life and his finished work on the cross, and he applies it to the life of the person who puts their trust in Jesus Christ, such that we have the very righteousness of Jesus credited to our account. We stand righteous in the sight of God the Father, not with the righteousness that we have conjured up by our good deeds and our spiritual performance. We stand before him righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Himself. That's why the hymn writer would say, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. It's an irreversible declaration of a holy God that we are accepted by him. It's an awesome, awesome truth. And Paul is bringing it in for a, a landing. Why do we need this truth? Because we have an enemy who is proficient at accusing us. It's, it's one of his, his names, is he is the accuser of the brethren because he's been practicing this for a long, long time. And he might have even been doing it to some people here in this room this morning. Pulls up alongside you when you begin to worship and he says, you? You're gonna worship, you're gonna sing now. That's what we're doing today, we're, we're singing. Nice. Let me remind you what we were doing yesterday at this time. Let me play a transcript of what you've been saying this week. And now you, you think that you're just gonna walk on up, just mosey on up and have access to the throne of grace. Maybe, maybe them, not you. So this is why the, the church has been singing this glorious hymn before the throne of God and it's basically a tutorial. What do we do when that happens? How do we apply the doctrine of justification to our real lives in the moments where Satan is accusing the brethren. And it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. That's the doctrine of justification wired up to the heart and bringing Christian truth down into Christian experience, breaking the grip of shame and giving us unshakable hope so that we're boasting in Christ and in him alone. You need that. You want that. As a believer, you deeply need that. And it's why God has put verses like this in your Bible. Look at verse one. Therefore, since, there's the indicatives, we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's leveraging that truth for our hope. It's not leveraging, it's not leveraging it in, in other possible biblical directions. For example, it's not saying here, since we've been justified 
by faith, we have power over sin. It's perfectly true, but he's going to talk about that in chapter 6. It's not saying since we've been justified by faith, we have a new relationship to the law. Perfectly true, but he's going to talk about that in chapter 7. Here, it's since we've been justified by faith, we boast, we rejoice, and we have hope that's unbreakable. That's how he's bringing it down for a landing into Christian hearts. And here's what it means. God can make even your hardship serviceable to your hope. God can make even your hardship serviceable to your hope. There is no trial that is beyond the reach of God's redeeming grace. There is no suffering in our lives that can stop the believer from boasting in God. Romans 5 stands as a witness to that truth, right? Satan loves to drive a wedge between the believer and our God, and he loves to use suffering and affliction in our lives to make us run the other way, to run away from God rather than to run to God with our pain. And what, so that's maybe one of Satan's favorite things to do. One of his least favorite things to see is when God takes evil, what the enemy has meant for evil, and turns it for our good. And that's the work that only a God of providence who can faithfully, as a good father who's in control, who can manage even our afflictions so that they are productive of hope. Only God can do that, right? The beautiful thing that's happening here in our text, you see it in verse three, is affliction is kind of on an assembly line. It is, it is a hired, it is a forced hand, a forced employee in the providence of God. And affliction is making something. It's on the assembly line, and what's it making? Affliction produces endurance. (laughs) And then endurance starts going to work. Endurance is on the assembly line, and now endurance is making something. What's it making? Look at your text. Endurance produces proven character. Now here comes proven character down the assembly line. What's proven character doing? Making something. What's it making? It's making hope. And then Paul goes on to say, and this hope won't let you down. This hope won't leave you hanging. This hope will not disappoint. This hope will not put you to shame. And it even says, it won't put you to shame on the day when you most need to stand confident. Namely, on the day that Jesus returns. So literally, the the text could be translated, this hope will not put us to shame. There's this certainty that when we stand before Jesus Christ, the judge, on that great day, we will not stand in shame. Even though his eyes are gazing, his eyes are bright, his eyes are on fire, and they're staring through us, the the gaze of the omniscient, all-knowing God penetrating every sinner, and the only ones who can meet his eyes and not look away in shame are those who are hidden in Christ, those who are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. He's leveraging this truth of justification for us. We have hope even when we suffer too. We are loved even when we doubt it. We're loved even when we doubt it. Look at verse seven. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If I'm not mistaken, I think verse eight was my grandpa. I think it was his favorite verse in the entire Bible. 
is a dear brother and, and pastor of a church in New Orleans. Uh, I've known him for many years. He's known me since I was a kid. He calls himself Old Man Davidson. And Old Man Davidson ends all of his emails with Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners. And if you'll sit down long enough, he'll tell you the reason that verse sings in his soul. While we were still sinners, he died for us. While we were looking the wrong way, God chased us down. The love of God makes the Christian life sustainable. Makes the Christian life sustainable. If you you ask the Apostle Paul, explain your life. Why do you live the way that you live? The Apostle Paul says, the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. You want an explanation of everything that I do. It's he loves me. And it's utterly transformative. He says the love of Christ constrains me in mission. It's the love of Christ that propels the Christian life to be loved. It is truly a powerful thing. So my wife Paula We've been married for what will be next March, so one month and one day from now, March 15th. It will be 25 years of marriage that we've enjoyed. What a girl. She's an an awesome wife. And one of the things that she has faithfully done over these 25 years is she has said and shown over and over, I love you, Matt Mason. (laughs) I love you. And she'll surprise me. Like, she'll tuck notes in surprising places. So here's one of them. That's in my desk drawer. And I just opened my desk drawer to get a pen and there's this note. It's like, how'd she get in here? She's so sneaky, right? She, like, did she get around Anita? Are they in cahoots? Like, what's the situation here? But she'll just stick this note in surprising places, right? So one of my rhythms is to, every morning I go get my coffee and I walk past my daily calendar and I just look at the daily calendar to see what's going on and then I see this one. Right, so she just sticks this little I love you. It's just posted in various places in our lives. I see that note, and it's tucked in surprising places in my world, right? And those are the days where I can pretty much announce in advance, nothing can throw me off my game today. She has spoken. The woman has spoken. She loves me. Try to stop me, right? I'm convinced, and this statement of love from someone who matters deeply in my life, she has told me what she thinks, and now bring it, right? And that's human love (laughs) that operates that way. Now put it to the nth degree, multiply it by infinity, and here's the love of God poured into the hearts of believers. Do you think that can't stand us up in a storm? It's an awesome thing to know that we're loved by God utterly transforms everything. And God says, I'm gonna make sure you get it. I'm gonna put it all over my word and I'm gonna stick it right here in Romans 5 so you have to stare at it together. What do we see? To convince us of his love, God gave us his spirit. To convince us of his love, God gave us his spirit. Look at verse five. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. How? through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I hadn't considered until this week, it was fresh to me, I hadn't considered that the gift of the Holy Spirit to indwell my life 
is God, God pinning his love note in the deepest places in my life. He says, I'm gonna make sure, Mason, you never forget this. I'm gonna pour my spirit into you so you never doubt you are loved by me. That's how this is gonna work. None of my children are gonna go to bed at night wondering, does he love me? Pulling stems off a plant. He loves me, he loves me not. Assessing and evaluating how we did that day. Did I do enough to ingratiate myself to a holy God? He says, every one of my children's going to bed tonight knowing, yes, he loves you. And the guarantee is I'm gonna put my spirit in them and he's gonna whisper it every morning He's going to whisper it every night. In the deepest places of our lives, he convinces us of his love for us. And how deep does that work go? Look, even when you have doubts, you realize my doubts as to God's loving intentions don't change God's loving intentions. (laughs) How awesome is that? How set are we when that's the way things shake out? When suffering leads to discouragement, the Spirit is saying, he loves you. When sin gets the upper hand, the Spirit is saying, he loves you. And not only do we have the indwelling Spirit, as if that that weren't enough, we have Calvary. Verse 8, God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the next point. To convince us of his love, God sent his Son to die. You see the language that's used here in the text is the father pours his love and proves his love. He pours his love out through the Holy Spirit and he proves his love through the death of his son. In other words, the redemptive work of the triune God is brought into this chapter for one purpose, to deliver this glorious truth. You are mine, you will never not be mine. I bought you with real blood that was shed on Calvary by my son and then I poured my Holy Spirit. How could you ever doubt how I feel about you? And that comes into the flooding into the Christian experience and it changes everything. Helps us to realize his love is not dependent on my loveliness. His love is not dependent on my sinlessness. Dane Ortland in his excellent book, Gentle and Lowly, I would recommend everybody read it. He writes these words, Christ died to confound our intuitive assumptions that divine love has an expiration date. (laughs) To confound that assumption, right? There's a man named Justin Early who's written a book. It's called The Common Rule. And in the book, he, he wants to develop in Christians formative habits, um, tracks that God's grace can run on because these are sacred practices in our lives. He calls them liturgies, built-in liturgies throughout our day. And he has what he suggests as a bedtime liturgy for parents with young children. And here's the liturgy. The parent says, do you see my eyes? Yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? Yes. Do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what good things you do? Yes. Do you know that I love you no matter what bad things you do? Yes. Who else loves you like that? God does. Even more than me? Yes. Rest in that love. Kid could use that every night. 
I could use that every night. God gives his spirit so that I hear that every night. Look, if you don't think you need that, if you don't think you need the father to talk to you like a child, you went and grew up. And Jesus said the kingdom belongs to children. You went and grew up. You got sophisticated. And at some point, you came to a point where you thought, I'm above the need for hearing the love that the Father has for me. If that truth that we just talked about, if that's precious to you, maybe it's precious to you for the very first time, even this morning, you can have it all. (laughs) Receive Jesus Christ, and here God comes, and he says, all right, here's how it goes. My son bled for you, and now you're mine forever. You can't get out of this. You're mine forever. And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit right now, and he's going to tell you the same thing tonight. We have hope even when we suffer. We are loved even when we doubt it. And third, we rejoice because we stand in grace. Our passage is bookended by gospel indicatives. It's bookended by the work that God has done for us in Christ. Justification in verse one, reconciliation in verse 11. It's bookended by what God has done. It's also bookended by the Christian experience. So what does that do for the Christian? He says, here's what you do. Verse two, we boast. (laughs) Verse 11, we boast. It's a word that in other places in the New Testament is often translated rejoice, but it's more than rejoicing, which is why the Christian Standard Bible renders it boasting, because technically you can rejoice without making a sound. You can't boast without making a sound. Boasting makes a sound. Boasting, everybody knows when you're boasting. It has a way of showing up. It's visible. It's audible, right? And he's, he's saying, I want you to have, because you're so deeply loved by God, I want you to have a joy in Christ that can be seen and heard. It's that felt in your personal experience. The joy we, didn't, we have didn't come from this world, so nothing in this world can take it away. There's this boasting in the future hope of glory, and there's this boasting that's made possible because of the way that God has loved us forever in Christ. You know, in the uh, late 1800s, what seemed like just a friendly visit be- turned into a work of art the producing of a work of art. A a woman by the name of Mrs. Knapp invited her friend over, her dear friend, and she said, look, I'm having an organ installed in my house. They were both musicians. She said, I have an organ installed in my house. I want you to come see it as it's being put in. So here comes her friend over to the house, and they're sitting together, and they're watching the organ get installed. And Mrs. Knapp says, so I'm working on this song. And they walk over to the piano, and she says, I want you to hear it. And she plays this melody and, and the harmony. And she says, and I don't have a lyric for it yet, but here's how it sounds. And after she played the song, she said to her friend, what do you think the tune says? And her friend, Fanny Crosby, replied, I think the tune says, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And if you're familiar with that great hymn, you know how blessed assurance is leveraged in that hymn, blessed assurance, it's not hope hanging in midair. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchased of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. It's assurance anchored in 
indicatives. It's perhaps inspired in many ways by Romans 5. So now what? Very briefly, two things to take home. Number one, rest in Christ. Christian friend, know that you don't have to earn God's favor. Know that his pleasure is over you now and eternally through Jesus. It's really that good. Rest in Christ and two, boast in Christ. So who's gonna hear the hope that you have this week? Who's gonna hear how awesome it is to be loved by God? Not only that, does it issue forth in the way that we bear witness to Christ, it issues forth just in our obedience. We boast in Christ in our obedience. We say you are worthy by living by his word. That's a means by which we boast in Christ. And then here's another angle on that. Boasting in Christ, how is your worship, I mean corporate worship, going to reflect these massive truths that they're wired up to the heart? How will we throw aside religious formalism and buy all the way into the story of grace, right? How are we gonna sing with abandon before the God who has saved us, right? Will Brook Hill's worship have theological depth and doxological heat? Will our worship sizzle? It should. Romans says, I wanna teach you so that your worship sizzles, so that you feel it deeply in your Christian experience.